It is Wednesday, August 16th, 2023, and welcome to episode 245 of Fault Lines as we continue our Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Charles Clancy about the intersection of AI and cybersecurity and several other topics. Dr. Clancy is a Senior Vice President and the Chief Futurist at MITRE and is the General Manager of MITRE Labs, where he manages over 4,000 scientists, technologists, and engineers who deliver technical capabilities and solutions to the six federally funded research and development centers MITRE operates on behalf of the U.S. government. Charles, first of all, thanks a lot for being with us. Uh, to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about MITRE, what it does, what it focuses on, who its clients are? Sure. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to join you uh, on the podcast. Um, MITRE is a nonprofit. Uh, we operate federally funded research and development centers as our core business. Uh, we currently operate six of them, all the way from uh, our legacy ones supporting Department of Defense and Intelligence community, which have really have been around for the longest, all the way through um, to some of the newer ones uh, supporting uh, NIST and Health and Human Services, uh, Transportation, uh, Homeland Security. Uh, so it's really our mission to be uh, a deep reservoir of both technical and mission expertise uh, that can help uh, the federal government be successful in its in its mission. And you're the general manager of MITRE Labs. Can you tell us what your 4,000 scientists are working on, particularly with respect to artificial intelligence? Sure. Uh, so MITRE Labs is one of the business units within MITRE, um, and we are really the science, technology, and engineering backbone of the company. Uh, we bring the deep technical and scientific expertise across all six of the FFRDCs, Federally Funded Research Development Centers, uh, that MITRE operates. So we're really the glue, the technical glue uh, across the whole company. Um, and AI is one of our major areas of practice, uh, really including modeling and simulation and data science. Um, and uh, broadly within those areas of, of computational analytics, we have an extensive set of programs uh, from supporting uh, the Department of Defense's uh, CDAO office they stood up recently to um, I don't know, helping the IRS with applying AI to its tax mission. Um, and that's, of course, just part of what our 4,000 scientists, engineers, and technologists do. Um, AI represents um, probably... 20%, I'd say, of, of the overall work within MITRE Labs. And tell us, uh, you're, you're a nonprofit, but you've got this very strong connection to the U.S. government. It sounds to me like a lot of your clients are parts of the U.S. government. Who are the decision makers for what MITRE will do or focus on or the, or the projects it'll take on? Sure. Each of our um, uh, operating agreements with uh, our sponsors a, a little bit different, and, and the way that we're managed is a little bit different from agency to agency. Within the Department of Defense, we really work closely with the Pentagon and with the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering to really plan uh, our support to them each year to include the services, the combatant commands, various defense agencies, um, really to make sure that 
uh, of the MITRE resources, they're allocated through the congressional process. Uh, they're, we are being applied to their most difficult technical problems and can bring our, our deep expertise. Um, within some of the other agencies, uh, it's, it's a little more ad hoc. Uh, some have kind of core funding to support a particular body of work supporting MITRE. Um, others, it's uh, sort of elastic depending on the needs of the agency year to year, working with them to identify um, funding and priorities for, for MITRE to execute. I noticed one of your other titles is that you're the chief futurist at MITRE. What is a futurist? <laughs> well, when I when I received that title a couple of years ago, uh, it, it was an interesting process to really kind of grow into it and figure out what a chief futurist really was. Um, most of the ones that are out there today work for big tech companies and they're um, uh, often science fiction authors who uh, have really grown a reputation for thinking about the future. Um, at least my rendition of being a chief futurist is really thinking about the current trajectory that we are on with respect to uh, critical and emerging technology. Um, pretty much every single technology curve is following um, an exponential growth path that tracks with Moore's law, really that governs the growth of semiconductors. And uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about in two years, in five years, in 10 years, where does that exponential growth take us in terms of techno technological capability? And what do we need to be doing as a nation uh, and as a government in order to uh, be ready for that, either from an economic competitiveness perspective with China or uh, in applying those technologies to different federal agency missions? And how does that futurist aspect, that, that orientation towards the future, affect your thinking about the free market in the U.S. and kind of this this hot house of innovation that we have with that has, I would say, a lot of pros but some cons. Uh, how does how does your how do you think about the 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 U.S. kind of ground up free market in in the sense of the future versus a more authoritarian approach, top down controls? And I think you know who I'm talking about. Uh, but what's the how does a futurist think about those two dynamics? Well, as I think about the sort of U.S. tech economy, um, it's very strong in certain areas, particularly in software. Um, our Silicon Valley has perfected the art of software innovation. Um, and I think that's a, a key strength that we continue to leverage and continue to grow. Um, however, I'd say over the last uh, 20 to 30 years, our focus on software has caused us to atrophy in other areas of innovation, particularly semiconductors, chip manufacturing, um, uh, hardware in general, I would say, has, has suffered at the expense of software. And uh, that creates challenges because a lot of our software innovation depends on hardware supply chains. And so as I think about the future, particularly in the area of, of hardware and semiconductors, I see risk. If we want to continue the exponential growth that enables the exponential growth of all of our other industries, we need to be able to de-risk some of the challenges we see uh, uh, geopolitically in the semiconductor space. And is how do we do that? Is there you've um, written about a possible regulatory framework, particularly in the AI space? Can can you talk broadly about about that? What would that look like? And and how would that fit into this, the, the national competition between the U.S. and China? Well, I think broadly, uh, beyond just AI, I think it all points back to the Chips and Science Act, which is really sort of the marquee legislation uh, that's really trying to invest in uh, long-term durable gains in science and technology that can keep us competitive on the global stage uh, for, for a long period of time. Um, Certainly in some areas that is subsidies and the U.S. economy 
uh, manufacturing economy in those areas needs to pick up in order to make sure that uh, those subsidies aren't just a flash in the pan that, that creates industries that can't sustain themselves. We need to have economies of scale that can continue to grow. Um, but I, I'd say across the board, there's a, a, a lot of buy-in to the objectives of the Chips and Science Act. Um, I think the big challenge right now is that um, while the semiconductor things were funded in the legislation, the rest is all um, uh, authorized but not appropriated. And so it's a year-to-year -year budget cycle mm -hmm. of trying to make sure that there's enough investment in all those programs in order to maintain our, our long-term goal. Um, zooming in specifically to AI, yes, we released a, a paper recently on uh, AI regulation, uh, really in response to uh, growing discussions around the need to regulate AI, which is, is seen as um, having a, a pre-dramatic escalation in capabilities that many people weren't expecting. In your view, what would that regulation look like? Is that something Congress should be taking a look at, passing a law, president signs the law, there's a new uh, regulatory framework for AI? Is this something that could be done by executive order? Or is it something that should be done through uh, standards adopted by industry or uh, maybe way out there. Is it possible we could be looking at an international treaty to govern uses of AI? I mean, I think all of those uh, tools are in the toolbox as we look at a comprehensive approach. Um, we've already seen a couple executive orders on AI come out of the White House, uh, focusing on high-level principles around uh, our development of AI. Um, on the Hill, obviously, uh, Chuck Schumer is leading a, uh, a set of activities that, that hopefully will culminate in a larger uh, legislative package on AI coming out of Capitol Hill. Um, but at the end of the day, as you think about the at least our perspective on the best way to regulate AI is not to treat it as some separate thing that needs some new agency to regulate it, but rather to recognize that AI is going to be integrated into pretty much everything we use. And so um, when you have existing regulated industries or critical infrastructure sectors that have regulatory environments around them, really we need to be thinking about how those existing regulators can think about uh, AI as part of a comprehensive regulatory environment for those sectors. Uh, so I think a great example is the FDA, right? The FDA has been thinking a lot about the role of software uh, in medicine and has created uh, software as a medical device, as a regulatory regime where they can certify software in, in the same way, more or less, that they treat, they, they regulate pharmaceuticals. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing um, AI being used to do uh, diagnostics for medical imaging, right? And so if someone's going to bring forward an AI algorithm that's going to spot uh, a cancer in, uh, I don't know, in a CT scan or an MRI scan, um, there needs to be the appropriate um, uh, regulatory infrastructure around that as there would be any other uh, uh, procedure that would use software or, or not use software. Um, and so we really feel as though many of the existing regulators need to get smart on AI and build some common tools that they can use to do testing and evaluation of AI rather than some new agency that's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And our concern with the new agency doing it is really that, um, one, you'd get um, a regulatory arbitrage. We saw that a lot in the cryptocurrency space where all the different crypto entities were trying to pick the financial regulator that would give them the best deal. Um, or you see, like we have on the Internet today, where you've got multiple regulatory agencies responsible for different pieces of it, and the interfaces between them uh, don't always come together nicely, and you end up with sort of regulatory turf wars between, between different agencies, which is also not good. And um, so I think 
our approach for AI very much models what was done with cyber about a decade ago uh, in the way that we, we regulate cybersecurity today. And what about um, conflicts between the federal level and the state level? Is it possible we'd be looking at, you know, in our federal system, uh, local or state level regulatory efforts that contradict what we're trying to do at the national level? Um, potentially, right? California often uh, gets out ahead of the federal government and uh, companies that do business in California end up having to follow California rules, which um, are uh, often not necessarily the same as the U.S. I think rather than sort of zooming in to the state regulatory level, maybe zooming out, uh, Europe is likely uh, going to have its own regulatory regime that uh, many of the large tech companies will be required to implement. And so I, I see it more as uh, Europe and the EU regulating the U.S. AI industry rather than uh, California regulating the U.S. AI industry. And so in that in that scenario, who who prov- if it's if the U.S. comes up with a uh, maybe a little more laissez faire model for uh, AI regulation and the EU comes up with something a little more comprehensive, who prevails? What system prevails? Is there, are we going to see two different competing models and, and uh, uh, innovative companies going to one jurisdiction over the other? Or are we going to see one kind of bleed over into the other and that will become a more, a more dominant scheme? That's a good question. I mean, I think we're all uh, frustrated every time we go to a website and it asks us which cookies yes. to accept, right? Yes. This is an artifact of That's European exactly what I was thinking of. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Is there a future where, uh, I don't know, every time you are about to interact with AI on the Internet, it has to have a little pop up and, and warn you? I don't know. Um, you could imagine those kinds of things in the future. Um, I'd say the big difference between the U.S. view and the European view um, I think comes down to accountability and who ultimately is at fault or liable if AI does something harmful. And this is still an open conversation. And honestly, I, I don't know that I know the right answer, but I think it's the, the, the conversation we need to get to the, an- the bottom of in order to really develop a, an integrated and comprehensive approach to, uh, to AI. Um, and so imagine a thought experiment. There's uh, like AutoGPT is this... Um, this agent-based AI that uses GPT. Um, it's hosted on a particular, uh, on Hugging Face, which is a, a cloud provider. Um, and you give it a, a, a task to execute on your behalf. And it goes off and breaks that task into subtasks and then tries to um, execute those subtasks in order in order to fulfill your request. Let's say one of those subtasks happens to be harmful in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Is it the person who made the original query that uh, should be held liable for that harmful outcome? Is it the people that made AutoGPT? Is it Hugging Face that's hosting it on their cloud system? Uh, it, or is it OpenAI that designed the algorithms and is potentially hosting the backend infrastructure for it? Uh, is it the people who curated the training data that went into training GPT in the first place? Right. So there's all these different people that are involved in the end-to-end sort of supply chain of AI. And um, the U.S. mindset is, well, um, let's focus on the, the human accountability. Who's the human that put the, the bad query in that caused the problem? Um, I think uh, the European regulatory mindset, though, is um, very much more around setting minimum thresholds for the tools themselves. So even if humans make bad decisions, uh, the tools won't let the humans make the bad decisions. And I think that's that's the gap that uh, will, will play out over the coming months as we as the U.S. and the EU try to sort through all this. Kind of going back to this this earlier theme, what's your assessment of where the United States stands in the in the competitiveness picture 
on AI, especially vis-a-vis China, but also with respect to the European Union? So the EU isn't really even on the map. Um, <laughs> I think the EU has uh, concluded that their role in most high-tech areas is to be the world's regulator. Yeah. Um, if you look at the location of the, the six to eight largest hyperscaler tech companies that run the cloud and backbone of the internet, I mean, half are in uh, half in the US and half of them are in China. And the ones in China are really just sort of copy-paste clones of their US counterparts. Um, and so as we think about AI, well, it's, it's interesting as you look at the release of some of these large language models, um, OpenAI started making really big progress uh, 2018, 2019 with the early versions of GPT. And um, so China observed that growth and started building their own. Um, but they, they shot too big. They made models that were way too large and they didn't have nearly enough training data for, for these models to work well. And so uh, they, they tried to go for sheer size of model um, without really thinking through the secondary effects of it. And so uh, they kind of caught up, but they did it in, a, in an inefficient way, uh, consumed a lot of, of, of money and compute resources to really not get ahead of us. Um, and so today I'd say they're probably about a year behind us. Um, but I think the, the bigger concern that the tech community has is not so much how far behind the U S is, uh, behind say the, the big U S tech companies, but how far the open source community is behind the big U S tech companies. Uh, because Facebook in particular, Meta has been releasing all of their models open source, which is allowing the open source community actually now to get ahead of China and start to catch up with, with, with uh, the big tech companies here in the U.S. Wow. Maybe one other topic before we wrap up. Um, what's your assessment of how artificial intelligence impacts uh, kind of the, the cyber warfare realm, uh, which is, uh, you know, these, these attacks that uh, come against, uh, I'm thinking from the U.S. perspective, against our uh, pipelines or our food service industry, um, you know, our agricultural infrastructure. How is how is AI going to impact cyber defense and and this uh, this concern about hacking our our valuable resources? So there's a couple different legs to that stool. I guess I'd start with the defensive picture. Here in the U.S. Um, 37% of our cyber jobs are unfilled. We don't have the cyber workforce to fill hmm. uh, the cyber jobs that we have, which means that networks are underdefended today based on how we defend networks. I think there's a huge opportunity for AI automation to close the cybersecurity workforce gap that we have today by taking uh, a lot of the tasks and, and automating them, allowing people to just be twice as efficient in their jobs. Um, so from a defensive perspective, I think there's some interesting opportunity. Um, on the offensive perspective, uh, I would wager that in the next year, we're going to have GPT-enabled or some clone of GPT-enabled um, cyber tools that will help hackers plan and execute their attacks more efficiently. Um, it'll give the uh, sort of an average hacker the skills of a nation-state hacker, and it'll give a nation-state mm -hmm. hacker the scale to handle 10 to 20 targets all at once uh, by using all this workflow automation that is contextually aware and, and understands the um, activities, mm -hmm. the, the steps that you take when you're executing a hack. Um, and so that's a huge concern around just the volume of uh, and potentially changing business models in how cyber operations happens. Um, and then the third leg of the stool is not using AI to hack, but hacking the AI itself. 
uh, where you've got AI increasingly part of every system that we use and uh, adversaries either targeting the training data or um, some of the unique aspects of the, the train networks themselves to cause them to behave in unexpected ways or exhibit failure modes uh, in unexpected ways that could be part of uh, broader objectives that uh, cyber adversaries might have. Um, and being able to effectively defend our AI systems uh, that are going to be increasingly running uh, pieces of the internet and, and our digital infrastructure. Um, all right, maybe exit question. What unanticipated challenge will we get from artificial intelligence? I I think some of the stuff we've seen thus far, um, not too surprising. Students are using AI to write their papers for them. Uh, that's that's a challenge for our our teachers and our professors. Uh, what ten years from now, what's what's something that AI will be doing to disrupt our society that maybe we're not thinking about yet? Um, I, well, one, it's it's hard to predict anything more than like two years out with AI, just because things are moving at this. Ex- extreme exponential pace. And um, there's a a handful of things that could basically cause AI to plateau. And so it's quite possible that in the next two years, we're going to run out of training data as a society Mm -hmm. and not be able to train any smarter models than we have now. Uh, It's also possible that we'll run out of compute resources and and, uh, AI intelligence will will plateau as a result from that. Um, If AI does not plateau, then in 10 years, uh, GPT-7 will have um, orders of magnitude more um, model parameters than the human brain has synapses, right? Wow. And uh, so when we're, we're, we're in the super intelligent AI t- territory, I think all bets are off in terms of how disruptive it could be. Um, but I have a s- sneaking suspicion that we're not going to get that far because we're going to run out of training data uh, before we, uh, we get that far. So the, the limiting factor could be the amount of big data that we're willing to, that we have, or that we're willing to subject to AI. Yeah, I mean, the one school of thought is that AI will never be smarter than the collective intelligence of humanity because it's trained on the collective intelligence of humanity, um, and so it'll be smarter than any one of us. But it won't be smaller than all, smarter than all of us. Um, and uh, I mean, that's perhaps not a terrible end state. <laughs> yeah. That's a wrap. Thank you so much to Dr. Charles Clancy for coming on the podcast for our special Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. Thanks to Brooke Aga Khan and Devlin Burney from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help in producing today's episode. Thoughtlines is also now on YouTube, so you can see our smiling faces. And if you like what you heard and saw, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share with all of your friends wherever you get your podcasts.